0: Reflections on the Poetry of T.S. Eliot, The Early Poems, by Gil Bailey, narrated by Gil Bailey, and produced by the Cornerstone Forum, Part One. Well, I think we can best understand Eliot's proof rock by trying to locate it in terms of the uh, the inherited cultural map. which Eliot relies on a great deal. And I would like to use three pieces of, um, three sort of literary benchmarks to to try to get a reading on what what Eliot is doing in in The Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock. And the first is Hamlet. Hamlet is a great story of the man who could not decide, of the man of indecision. Uh, But what's more important about Hamlet is that Hamlet has... uh, has breached the walls of cul- of his cultural containment. Uh, one of the reasons he cannot uh, decide is because the uh, the the cultural reinforcements of the decision making process are no longer no longer available to him the way they were when he was still contained in the culture. Um, he he has broken loose, you might say, from his cultural moorings, and finds the ability to make a decision hampered. Uh, to that extent. And, of course, the decision that Hamlet is called upon to make... This is not particularly germane to Prufrock, but I I want to mention it anyway. The particular decision Hamlet is called upon to make is the decision to avenge the death of his... the wrongful death of his his father, the old king. So Shakespeare has picked out the central act of will or decision in terms of the, the historical dynamic. You might say that revenge plays a the same mythological role with respect to the to the replication of the historical process that romance plays with respect to biological reproduction that's a complicated thing but revenge plays the same mythological role with respect to the replication of the historical dynamic that romance plays mythologically with respect to biological reproduction Revenge is a mythological construct uh, and what it does is that it transmits the mimetic violence, mimetic rivalry and violence from one generation to the next. It's the uh, connecting link, the the genetic link uh, that replicates the historical crisis from one generation to the Mm -hmm. other. And from the, hist- from within the historical context, it's absolutely crucial. You see, in the same way that biological re- uh, reproduction is to the organism the central role, in terms of the historical myth, the central role is to replicate the dynamic into the next generation. And the key to that is, is the act of revenge. It's what keeps the process Replicating itself on down through history. Hamlet is indecisive in the face of the central historical task, and that is to commit a murder that will end the murdering, which of course it never does, because the one who is murdered will then have kinfolks who will then have, they will be obliged to revenge and so on. And Shakespeare lays that out in great detail at the beginning of the play. We're not here really to talk about Hamlet, but the point, but I, I want to draw that out because. It's not a peripheral issue that's involved in, in Hamlet's indecisiveness. It's the central historical one. But in any case, we can take a reading of Proofrock from Hamlet because Proofrock is in a place of indecision as well. Now, Hamlet has um, separated himself from cultural containment by having gone to the university, uh, the University of uh, Wittenberg. He and Horatio have been to the university together. Uh, They have gone to the university. Well, the purpose of going to the university is to learn about the universe. That's why we call it a university. And uh, the problem with learning about the universe is that you have to unlearn some things about the parochial setting that did not have that kind of scope. So when someone leaves a place like Denmark, say, and goes to the university to learn about the larger cosmos, the universe, there's a great deal of unlearning that has to go on with respect to the, the original parochial setting, in this case, Denmark. So Hamlet has become indecisive because he has fallen out of the cultural containment. He has fallen out of the cultural containment because he has gone to the university and learned something about the universal situation. The great example of that in the early part of Hamlet is uh, something Horatio says in, uh, in scene one of act one. And that is uh, Horatio's out on the moors where the ghost has, uh, of old King Hamlet has just appeared. And Horatio, who has also been to the university with uh, Hamlet, uh, says this to his uh, companions who are there. Our last king, whose image even but now appeared to us, was, as you know, by Fortinbras of Norway, thereto pricked on by a most emulate pride, dared to the combat in which our valiant Hamlet did slay this Fortinbras. Uh, let me just pause and reflect on that. Uh, emulate pride means uh, envious pride. Uh, uh, just to, to get a little commercial in here for the Girardian hermeneutic. That's exactly this connecting link, uh, mimetic rivalry, mimetic desire, uh, mimetic violence, uh, the sort of the linchpin of the historical process. And this is just an example of it, one of the millions of examples of it. So that old Hamlet, who's now dead, uh, was uh, pricked on by, by a mimetic desire to challenge Fortinbras for a piece of turf and uh, killed Fortinbras. And, of course, that means that young Fortinbras now has it out for whoever's the top guy in Denmark and so on. So the, the beat goes on. See, that's the process. What's important about this is is what I left out, which is a parenthesis. Horatio says, Our valiant Hamlet, parentheses, for so this side of our known world esteemed him, did slay this Fortinbras. Now, the... Whatever it costs to get a university education, what you get for your money is that parenthesis, which is to say that he understands that not everybody esteems Hamlet the way we in Denmark esteem Hamlet. That if you go over to, say, Norway, you will find that Hamlet is not esteemed as the great and valiant Hamlet. He is esteemed as, you know, as an international pirate or something. In other words, having gone to the university, he begins to understand that we, have, we regard uh, differently those people who who share our cultural myth, whereas those outside it uh, see it in, in quite another way. Now, that's the price of the university education. Horatio has managed to survive that education with a vestigial ability to act and will within the parochial setting. He can continue to, to live up to the standards set within the parochial context. Hamlet has been more deeply bitten by this universality, and he finds it increasingly difficult to live up to the parochial cultural demands because he has seen the bigger picture. So Hamlet goes mad. To some extent he, in fact, goes mad. To some extent he is regarded as having gone mad by those who are still contained in the cultural myth. Okay, well, what does this have to do with um, Eliot writing in the first of the 20th century and with Prufrock? Well, we have a few more stops on the way before we get to that, but what it has to do with the first part of the 20th century is that um, this is the century about which William Butler Yeats said, the center cannot hold mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. In other words, uh, what happened to Hamlet, uh, uniquely to Hamlet in Shakespeare's depiction in that play, is happening to more and more people in our day. That is to say, the gravitational field that holds us in orbit around something uh, has weakened, and more and more people out on the uh, out in the outer orbits of that uh, of that system are drifting away and losing touch with it, and therefore losing the uh, reinforcements that the culture provides for making decisions. Most decisions we make are made, though we're hardly aware of it, with a tremendous amount of cultural reinforcement. And when we find ourselves having drifted away from that gravitational field that enforces those, helps to enforce our decision-making, we find it increasingly difficult to make decisions, See, because we're having to sort of make them on our own. And this is, the, this is the Hamlet and, and the Prufrock uh, situation. The first people to show symptoms when the gravitational field weakens are the people in the outer orbits. Or let's change the metaphor uh, because we want to see the, there are two, two kinds of people in the outer orbits. The first people to show symptoms are the people at the margins of the cultural force field. And, they, and, and we can be at the margins of that force field in a way we can be at the top or the bottom of it. Eliot has, in we touched on it in, in uh, Sweeney Among the Nightingales, Eliot has, crea- has pictured a character, Sweeney, who is uh, what you might, might say on the lower margin of the cultural force field. And then he's created a proof rock, who is, in terms of his sophistication and, and uh, somewhat of his erudition and, and uh, intellect, uh, on the upper edges of the cultural force field. But both of them are on the margin, so that when the force field weakens, they both are cut loose from it. In a way, another metaphor would be, in a way, when the field weakens, Sweeney, the, the membrane that has been the containing walls of that cultural system, beca- they become permeable, and Sweeney's of the world fall through the floor, and the proof rocks of the world drift, thr- drift through the ceiling, you see. And they no longer have access to all of those cultural resources that might help them make intelligible decisions, or at least decisions that be intelligible to them. It's easy enough to see Sweeney's pathologizing. I mean, Sweeney's just right there. What you see is what you get. I mean, Sweeney <laughs> with his arms saying Sweeney's got the the the, uh, the the lady in the Spanish cape trying to sit on his knees and falling on the floor. I mean, that's just it's pretty easy to see Sweeney's situation. But Proofrock has carefully studied the social decorum and has managed to, on the surface of things, meet all of the social requirements. So in order to understand Prufrock's uh, drifting away from the cultural resource, you have to get inside his mind. And of course, that's exactly where Eliot puts us, inside Prufrock's mind. Now, there is something to lament about about the weakening of the cultural force field, but perhaps not as much as we might think. It's a necessary and valuable thing although extremely dangerous in the larger social setting but if you think of the in the gospel stories jesus continually confronts existing communal arrangements with a challenge in other words the con- con- existing communal arrangements or social systems are are premised falsely and are not capable of sustaining the message that Jesus is bringing. So one of the first things he has to do is challenge the legitimacy of the existing communal arrangement. And he does that in, at every level. When he meets the, the Samaritan woman at the well, he says, he says, God is worshipped neither here nor in Jerusalem. And when he confronts the, 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 the cultural arbiters, the Pharisees, and the scribes, and so on, he, he uh, condemns them out of hand as being irrelevant to his message, uh, even, when it, even the family, you see. Who are my brothers? Who is my mother? His family members and Mark think he's crazy. So he confronts the, the most revered uh, communal arrangement uh, as uh, incapable of sustaining an impact with the message he's come to deliver. So the first job is to begin to dissolve the old cultural form so that one can be capable of receiving this new message. So it's not altogether a a lamentable thing that this thing is happening, but it is dangerous, and it does produce a good deal of pathologizing on the part of the people who have to suffer through it, particularly if they have no, particularly if they have no traditional comprehension of what the process is that they are caught up in. Hamlet goes mad. Prufrock and Sweeney pathologize in their uh, various ways. But all of this represents a sort of canary in the, Mind shaft, in a way. I've quoted from this uh, text before, this long um, text in which René Girard, this Stanford scholar we've been working with, uh, has an ongoing uh, dialogue or colloquy with a couple of uh, psychiatrists over the implications of his anthropological work. And and uh, in one passage, he's talking about um, his work, and one of the psychiatrists, a man named Guy Laforte, uh, comments to Girard, and the comment is tongue-in-cheek, and he's speaking directly to, to Girard, but I'd like to read it in the context of of uh, Proofrock and Sweeney and Hamlet uh, uh, experiencing this uh, a kind of pathology as a result of having lost touch with the cultural system. Uh, LaFort says this to, to Girard, you must not disturb those in good health, he means good mental health, you must not disturb those in good health by suggesting that there is no more than a tiny difference in degree between them and the sick, nothing perhaps but a rather more robust sensibility, a less finely tuned intelligence for all that goes on in human relationships, especially in our modern world, which lacks the stabilizing forces of tradition. So the difference is, according to LaFleur, not so much between the healthy and the sick. The difference is between those who have begun to show symptoms and those who, for whatever reason, have not. That makes it much more interesting. It makes Prufrock, Hamlet, et al., uh, much more relevant to our condition. They're the canary in the mine shaft. Okay, the second uh, literary uh, document I want to use to get at proofrock is, uh, and, and more important one, really, is uh, Dante's Inferno. The epigraph to the poem is from Dante's Inferno, uh, but i think that the place to look for resonance the best place to look for resonance is in the first scene of dante's inferno which is in the dark wood now Rock is the first poem in the first volume of eliot's uh canon the his the corpus of his poetry so it has uh, literally the same place that canto 1 and 2 of uh, of Dante's Inferno has in the Dante, Dantean, not quite uh, preceding that in the Dantean one is uh, La Vita Nuova and some other things, and we'll talk about those as well. But anyway, let's start with the dark wood. Dante finds himself lost in the dark wood, having gone astray from the 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 the, the right road, the the way, the straight road and not being able to find his way back. In actual literal fact, Dante had been banished from Florence. Uh, So Dante, so there is, uh, there's now a parallel going on here. Uh, Dante was using, to some extent, as a parallel for his work, Aeneas in Virgil's Aeneid. So let me just try to parallel them. In Virgil's Aeneid, Aeneas has watched his city Troy burn, and has been expelled from it in that most graphic and literal sense. In Dante, Dante has been banished from Florence with a price on his head. If you ever come back here, you'll be executed. So he too has been banished from his from his cultural uh, center place. You see, you see? Hamlet. Is banished from Denmark, but notice it's not quite the same thing. He's literally he's he's physically in Denmark, but emotionally, and culturally, he has lost that connection with Denmark. And Prufrock is literally walking around the streets of, most likely London, but in fact any faceless city, and uh, has been cut off from the cultural resource. So in every case, you get a. Uh, you get a picture of someone cut off, and there's even a progression I think going on here, which is that uh, for Aeneas it's very literal. the city burns, and there it's gone. you don't have it anymore and then there and and then for uh, for Dante it's a banishment, it's not quite as literal and for for Hamlet, he's still walking around Denmark, you see, but he's lost touch with it, and Proofrock it's all in his mind, it's all in his mind now he walks through the cities. Uh, estranged from his cultural surroundings, so that it becomes ever more subtle. This, this, and as the gravitational field weakens, the the estrangement from it becomes ever more subtle, and also ever more uh, widespread, because it's not just one person being expelled, but people who are participating in it, losing touch with it. Dante in the dark wood does what we all do. That is to say he's lost in dark wood and he sees a little hill and the sun coming up behind a little hill. So he does what we all do. If you're in a down place, a dark place, and you see the sun coming up over a little hill, you run for the sun coming up over a little hill. That's what we all do. We try to get out of it by going up towards the light, to get up and out. And Dante tries to do that, and he's chased back down by the by the three beasts. And we'll we'll talk about that a little bit later. Um, the point is that you can't get out of you can't get out of that place. Uh, the shortcut uh, goes nowhere you can 't get out of that place by trying to go up and out towards the light, but who would ever know that? You see who would ever know that unless a Virgil comes along, who is the embodiment of the whole wisdom tradition who says i, I want to tell you I want to tell you something that 's counterintuitive." That's to say, that's what the, the physicists use that term, something's counterintuitive. I want to tell you something's counterintuitive. You want to get out of this place that's dark and down? Don't go up towards the light. Go down towards the dark. It's counterintuitive. You'd have to be there a long time uh, before you'd get a, ever get a hint of that. And probably, you, it, it's like reinventing the spiritual wheel. If you don't have a Virgil to come along and tell you that, how would you ever know it? Well, fortunately for Dante, he does have a Virgil. And Virgil provides him with that insight. Without it, it's a little bit like, uh, you know, put a, put a dozen monkeys as a typewriter for a million years and see if they'll produce the Encyclopedia Britannica. The tradition provides us with something that, you do, that an individual is not going to be able to recapitulate in one lifetime. So without it, you're lost. Well, Krufrock is without it. Eliot is not. The third literary thing that I want to mention again is Dante, and that's La Vita Nuova. Dante's early uh, work that had to do with his falling in love with Beatrice and so on and so forth. Prufrock is a love poem. The title of the poem is a love, The Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock. And it's very important to remember that this is a love song, though you would hardly guess it. And I think that the connection between Dante and Of Prufrock at this point is that there is awakened in the dark wood as there was by Virgil said, uh, Well, we'll speak of this a little bit later, but Virgil said, um, Dante said, Oh, I couldn't possibly do that, you Mm -hmm. see. And Virgil said, Well, uh, Beatrice sent me. And he said, Well, then I'm ready. So that the thing that brings us, begins to move the process out of that initial experience of the dark wood. Is an experience in which our erotic and our religious longing is commingled. We're talking about the Western psyche now. I don't know how much this applies to to uh, to another cultural uh, creatures of another cultural uh, enterprise, but but we begin to move out of that dark wood when we discover, we reconnect, we have a a uh, an anamnesis, a remembering of an original experience. And something begins to move in which erotic and religious longing is commingled. And that was the pattern that was central to Dante's experience. And Eliot, even at the time he's writing Prufrock, had been a serious study of everything that had to do with Dante. So the love song of J.L. for Prufrock is a story about Prufrock coming to that moment, uh, same moment, that Dante came to. The, the place in the dark wood, where the process begins to move, when he discovers some kind of experience that comes out of his memory, memory and de- mixture of memory and desire. we'll get into that in the wasteland. When we feel an erotic and religious longing that are commingling, commingled so that we can't even distinguish the, the two, they're all part of one experience. The title of this poem is "The Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock. Well, what's proof rock? See, it's it's two words, proof rock. That's what we need is a proof rock. That's the if you want to know what the center of gravity is, it's the proof rock. And one always has a proof. Ro- I mean, that's what makes the world intelligible is that there is that there is a touchstone that there's a proof rock. And uh, here's the proof rock for the 20th century. You see what's happened? Now we're going to get a picture of the 20th century. The proof rock, which is the very thing that allowed, gives us the resource to be decisive and to know who we are and what our, how we are related to all that has gone before us and all that will come after us and to all that of our contemporaries, and so on and so forth. That's what the proof rock does. The epigraph to the poem comes from um, Canto 16 of the Inferno. It is Dante speaking with a, a corrupt friar, condemned as an evil counselor, and punished as the evil counselors are in the Inferno by being enclosed in a, in a flame shaped the, like a tongue of fire. And speaking out of that flame. And Dante uh, uh, talks to him and then asks him to tell, asked this soul to tell him, his name's Guido, to tell Dante about himself. And he says, If I thought my reply were meant for one who ever could return into the world, this flame would stir no more. And yet, since none, if what I hear is true, ever returned alive from this abyss, then without fear of facing infamy, I answer you. Well, there are a number of things to be said about this. He indicates a despair that anybody could ever return from this, from this infernal state. So that he says, we will have a dialogue, but it will be a dialogue that nobody else will ever hear. It will, go no, it will not go beyond here, this dialogue. And you know, Prufrock starts, Let us go then, you and I. Prufrock is a dialogue. Uh, but it's a dialogue premised on the assumption that no one will ever overhear it. And of course, in Dante's uh, Inferno, Dante very uh, did in fact come out of the Inferno and did tell it in the same way that, that Eliot is now going to tell it. Eliot is going to make it public what this dialogue, this hidden dialogue, is, or was, see. So he's doing the same thing Dante was doing. He's listening to an infernal dialogue and he's making it public even though those who participated in it or one of them did not think it could ever be made public. And the dialogue that Eliot's going to make public is an inner dialogue going on in, inside the head of J. Alfred Prufa, the very place which we think will never be made public. The inner dialogue surely any infernal inner dialogue that takes place in my head will never be made public. And proof, and it is not something taking place in the head of this, that, or the other person that Eliot is trying to, to to bring out. It's the inner dialogue taking place in the head, or in the Western psyche. That's what Eliot is trying to bring out. And since it's an inner dialogue taking place mostly inside our heads, we, like Guido, assume that nobody will ever know about it. And Eliot who understands his role in many respects as being prophetic, has taken on the task of making that dialogue public. Now, that's a very bold step. Also, the the man who's punished in the Dante story is an evil counselor. That is to say, notice the punishment. In Dante, the genius of Dante, of course, is the punishment and the sin are the same thing. The punishment is simply the sin having run its course. Uh, The sin was evil counseling. That is to say, using the Holy Spirit, which is the counselor, the paraclete, the John and I paraclete is the counselor, using that spirit to inspire falsely. And the punishment is to be contained in the other image of the Holy Spirit, the tongue of fire, to be contained in it and tortured by it. So what this is about is the, the improper use of the Holy Spirit. Now, this speaks, you see, to the poet. The poet does not want to improperly use the Holy Spirit, lest he go the way of Guido. See? So, in a way, this little epigraph cuts both ways. Okay. Poem starts. Let us go then, you and I. Let's just pause there. Notice it says, let us go then, you and I. This is like, Opening a letter and finding and, and looking up to the top of the first page, and it says page two, let us go then you and i the The word then implies that this uh, this inner dialogue has been going on for some time. It implies a kind of exasperation it's almost well well, then let's just go. Uh, we come into the poem or come into the to the to the inner dialogue at a place where it's already exasperated by having gone back and forth and back and forth, let us go then, you and I. And the you and I, in Dante, the you and I is Dante and Virgil. Prufrock has no access to Virgil, and so his is an inner dialogue. It's a dialogue inside his mind between a part of him that would wants to do something and a part of him that is reticent. So let us go then, you and I Now, Dante and Virgil, when Virgil finally said, OK, remember Beatrice, and Dante perked up, and, OK, now I'm ready, OK, you ready to go? First stop for Dante and Virgil is the realm of the uncommitted. Those who could not come to a decision. So right away, let us go then, you and I, and then we're going to go out, as Dante and Virgil did, that same realm, this time visiting it not not in the thirteenth but in the twentieth century, let us go then you and I when the evening is spread out against the sky like a patient etherized upon a table, ether representing space in the in the ancient understanding, but representing specifically for the twentieth century an induced. Unconsciousness Designed to avoid pain. There's one word for you. One word says that. Like a patient etherized upon a table. Induced unconsciousness designed to avoid pain. Let us go through half-deserted streets, the muttering retreats of restless nights in one-night cheap hotels, and sawdust restaurants with oyster shells. Restless nights in one-night cheap hotel. These are one-night cheap hotels, but it's plural. Restless nights in one-night cheap hotel. One night in a one-night cheap hotel, we can mark that up to indiscretion. (coughs) But restless nights in one-night cheap hotel, that's another problem. And we're not just talking about you know, going to the to the uh, shady side of town or something. We're talking about a way of being. Restless nights in one-night cheap hotels is a reference, I think, to the repeated failure of the short-lived idols, whatever they are. I think I keep thinking that if only this would satisfy. See. And here's a culture that's that's living on uh, one chimera after another, one little fantasy after another, one little one-night stand after another, restless nights in one-night cheap hotels. That's that's a cultural commentary. The use of, of the term etherized in conjunction with the term restless it comes to, comes to an interesting point, too, because that's, that indicates that there is an induced, uh, uh, an induced uh, n- narcosis, but it is not rest. It, uh, so it's a combination of being uh, sedated and being agitated. So, half-deserted streets, Streets that follow like a tedious argument of insidious intent to lead you to an overwhelming question, dot, dot, dot the overwhelming question, and then it trails off. Oh, do not ask, what is it? Let us go and make our visit. Now, that is a hint about Eliot's poetic strategy. He is not going to say it. He is going to show it. And we're now going to make a visit, which will be both a visit to a place and a visit to a state of consciousness. And uh, this... Inner dialogue is now going to move in that direction. And then we get the great lines, two of the greatest lines in all of modern English poetry. In the room, the women come and go talking of Michelangelo. And it is a supreme comment. This is a well-intentioned group of people who know somehow that there is something of value in the tradition but they simply cannot come into contact with it and so they mill around and circumambulate it and talk about it and hang around it somehow knowing that it's there but not being able to connect with it seems to me that's the that's the the significance of these lines and Michelangelo is an archangel, you see? The archangel who is the champion of the Godhead. And uh, the contrast of Michelangelo with what has happened, you see, in the interim between Michelangelo and in the room the women come and go talking of Michelangelo. It shows how how recessive the tradition is for those who are trying to have access to it. Yeats has written a poem in which he said, Michelangelo left a proof on the Sistine Chapel roof. How do you get at it? And the women... By the way, Eliot's poetry is is amazing in terms of its echo structure. Everything in Eliot's poetry is echoing with everything else in Eliot's poetry. And in the room, women come and go talking Michelangelo is an interesting echo to uh, that passage in Cousin Nancy where uh, Matthew and Waldo are sitting on the shelf. Remember that? The tradition is there, but it's having no impact on the contemporary scene. It's not accessible in any kind of form that can inspire the uh, contemporary world. So the question is, why is there no access to it? The best we have is this sort of little parlor room scene. That's the best is the women talking about Michelangelo. Why is that? So Elliot now I think is going to not tell us but show us why that is. The yellow fog. That's why. The yellow fog that rubs its back upon the window panes the yellow smoke that rubs its muzzle on the window panes, licked its tongue into the corners of the evening, lingered upon the pools that stand and drain, let fall upon its back the soot that falls from chimneys, slipped by the terrace, made a sudden leap. Notice, everything is falls, lingered, standing, falling, falling, slipping, and there's one little sudden leap. And seeing that it was a soft October night, curled once about the house and fell asleep. We'll go on with that uh, in a minute. In Dante's Dark Wood, the reason he couldn't go up the little hill is because he was chased down by the lion and the she-wolf and the leopard. And the lion and the she-wolf and the leopard represented sinfulness to Dante. They represented violence and fraud and cupidity. And he could not go up towards the light because of those sinful inclinations in him. But you see, for Dante, that which prevented him from going up the hill was a moral failure. And so the beast that chased him down had dimensions, they had characteristics. In other words, you could engage them, you could struggle with them, you could anneal yourself to them, you could somehow deal with them. They, they were violence and fraud and cupidity. It was like that, see? That was the problem, and you could work on it. What corresponds in Prufrock to the three beasts is the yellow fog. See that's what keeps proofrock in a sense from going up the little hill, and notice the yellow fog does not have characteristics and dimensions. it doesn't lend itself to that kind of being able to deal with it in some straightforward way. It's some other kind of atmospheric thing you can't even put your fingers on it you just it's just It's just uh, endemic to the situation. It's the yellow fog that is why. This is a commentary on, in the room, the women come and go, talking of Michelangelo. It's a commentary on the inability to connect. Connect with each other, with the tradition, with past generations, with future generations, with the planet Earth. And you can't even see it up close. You kind of have to get away, and then you notice it. But it's everywhere. It's totally pervasive. And... We're part of what we're doing here is the apocalypse it's also the veil it's now the the veil that that camouflages everything and it is the the apocalypse is the the the, uh, the ripping of the veil the dispersing of the veil and the veil in the contemporary world is the yellow fog. and indeed there will be time for the yellow smoke that slides along the street rubbing its back upon the window panes and pause right there for a second notice three uh Times the line has ended with the words win- with the word window pane now in the the end word on a, in a poem like this is, uh, that's where the force is, so we have these lines window pane, window pane, window pane, and that's Eliot loading it up, so we'll get it window pane. Now, change the spelling, P-A-I-N-S, windowpane. You want to know what the yellow fog does? It separates. It separates by an almost invisible barrier. It keeps the world from connecting. The world of human relationships, the traditional connections between the past generations, the present generation, the future generation. The connection between us and the earth itself, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, and God. It intervenes and separates. And what do we feel when we start to feel that? When we get our nose right up against the window that's separating us from it? We feel window pane. That's it. You want to know what the what Elliot is describing in the contemporary world? Window pane. That's proof rocks is window pane. There will be time, there will be time to prepare a face to meet the faces that you meet. There will be time to murder and create and time for all the works and days of hands to lift and drop a question on your plate. Go on in a second, but we we have talked about this before, but come back to it for a second. The prophetic and the apocalyptic, which is the apoca- the the apocalyptic is the prophetic taken to its most exager- exasperated play. understands that now is the decisive moment, that life cannot be postponed. But Prufrock, engulfed in that yellow fog, says there will be time. There's plenty of time. There's plenty of time. Time for all the works and days of hands. That's a reference to Hesiod's uh, works and days. Hesiod's works and days is a salute to hard manual labor. But I think Eliot is using that here as a commentary on the, the external achievements of culture. You see? Electricity. Uh, cars, uh, TVs, telecommunications, sophistications of all—in other words, the material accomplishments—which tend to be the sublimation for deeper questions. You see, we tend to sublimate the deeper questions into the into the activities that that achieve the material accomplishments. And what Elliot is saying is that sooner or later the works and days of hands will lift and drop a... And notice the lift and drop, that's also a very muscular image. Will lift and drop a question on your plate. That sooner or later, it will come back. And the plate, I think, for Eliot, is almost always an image of appetite in, in all of its ramifications. So the sooner or later, that question will fall on one's plate, and there it will be. And still we have the outstanding issue, which is what is this overwhelming question? Time for you and time for me, and time for yet a hundred indecisions. For a hundred visions and revisions, before the taking of a toast and tea. There you have indecisions, visions, and revisions. Notice how visions is understood here. There are dime a dozen. You see? There are dime a dozen. Visions rhymes with decision. Revisions rhymes with decisions. Indecisions rhymes with decisions. But none of them equals decision. It's decision. It's called for, and that's the tough part. Before the taking of a toast and tea. Now, what we human beings have in the traditional uh, panoply of things to aid us when it's time to make a decision. A fundamental decision that we want to make—we want to make the decision not just in the mind or in part of our being, but we want to make it at all the chakras, so to speak. We want to register it at all the registers of our being. The tradition provides us something for that kind of decision making. What it provides us with is sacrament, and it is a, the sacrament is the is the liturgical context in which profound decisions are made. And what does Proofrock have? Tea time. The only sacrament he has, it's the only deadline he has, you see, it says for a hundred visions and revisions, before the taking of a toast and tea, in other words, four o'clock comes, or when, whatever, then the deadline. We've got to stop then, whatever this ruminating we're, we're doing, it has to stop then because then we're going to have toast and tea. That's the only sacrament available. But if you want to find out whether it has any sacramental uh, power, all you have to do is read the next line. In the room, the women come and go, talking of Michelangelo. That brackets this passage here, which tells us about the fog, about the indecisiveness, about the languor, the sense of, all oh, there's plenty of time yet, and no sacramental resource, and still no connection with that traditional wisdom. So the theme continues with uh, plenty of time, but the extension of time uh, contributing to the indecision. And indeed there will be time to wonder, do I dare and do I dare, time to turn back and descend the stair with a bald spot in the middle of my hair. And then a bracket. In brackets, they will say, how his hair is growing thin, close brackets. You can't see the bald spot in the middle of your own hair. Uh, it only can be seen through the eyes of others. Sebastian Moore says, "Sin is seeing my life through other people's eyes." He turns back to turn back, you see, and descend the stair. Again, resignation, retreat, with a ball spot in the middle of my hair, my morning coat, my collar mounting firmly to the chin, my necktie rich and modest, but asserted by a simple pin. Now, notice the care he takes with uh, meeting. In terms of the externals, the social requirements. A great deal of attention has gone into just the right combination. Notice necktie rich and modest. So you have it kind of both of those things. Asserted, asserted, important verb here, asserted by a simple pin. So it's an assertion, you see, but careful to make the assertion uh, modest. It's a simple pin. So it's a studied adherence to the social code. And then the brackets again. They will say, but how his arms and legs are thin. In other words, after all the clothes have been applied, uh, it doesn't camouflage the actual facts, which is emaciation. But how his arms and legs are thin. Do I dare disturb the universe? In a minute there is time for decisions and revisions which a minute will reverse. And then this three-part section, which is the world weariness. I have known them all already, known them all. I have known. Notice, I have known. It's not I know, uh, but I have known. It's a very weak verb form, you see. I have known them all already, known them all. Have known... The evenings, mornings, afternoons—I have measured out my life with coffee spoons. There's this sort of undifferentiated experience of the of times passing. It's all the same. Morning, evenings, mornings, afternoons—I have measured out my life with coffee spoons. I have known the voices dying with a dying fall beneath the music from a farther room. Again, you have that sense of being separated hearing it only at some distance and the music itself is is falling away and so all of it is part of this experience of the yellow fog all of it is dispersing losing its connection so how should i presume in other words how can i in, in under those circumstances come to a decisive place and i have known the eyes already now we're into the social scene, you see, the social world. I have known the eyes already, known them all. Eyes that fix you in a formulated phrase. That is to say, the phrase says, Oh, I know him. He's, or she's, you see, whatever the, whatever, the, fill in the blank. And when I am formulated, and notice we spend the first half of our lives trying to get formulated that's we 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 work at this hoping to carve out some little social niche that conforms to the to the categories that that society finds acceptable and so we we to, to not have one of those niches is a terrible thing it's 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 better psychologically uh it it seems better psychologically uh, to have a niche that might have a negative spin on it than not to have one at all, you see. So we, we do whatever we have to do to earn ourselves a formulation. But having done that, we find out that we are formulated. The eyes that fix you in a formulated phrase. Oh, I know her. I know him. Uh, he's a dot or she's a dot-a-dot. Dot, formulated. When I'm formulated, sprawling on a, guess what, pin, When I am pinned and wriggling on the wall, remember what he asserted himself with? Asserted by a simple pin, And that very same thing, which was the source of his self-assertion, becomes the key to the formulation of the social order. In other words, he asserted himself under those pretexts, and therefore the social order... uh, adopts that as the formulation for who he is. You see how that closes back in on him? And now he is pinned under that same pin that he used to assert himself. And he is pinned and wriggling on the wall. And the image, of course, is the collection of insects in the case. And each has a pin running through it. And each is uh, now cataloged and formulated. And when I'm pinned and wriggling on the wall, Then how should I begin? How should I begin? To spit out all the butt-ends of my days and ways. It's a very aggressive thing all of a sudden. It breaks with this other tone. How should I begin? We're talking now a new beginning, but notice what he wants to begin is to end what has been. How should I begin to spit out all the butt ends of my days and ways? And how should I presume? And I have known the arms already, known them all. Now, this is the erotic arms that are braceleted and white and bare, bracketed, but in the lamplight downed with light brown hair. Is it perfume from a dress that makes me so digress? arms that lie along a table or wrap about a shawl, and should I then presume, and how should I begin? He begins to feel the stirring of the erotic, memory and desire, and he has known the arms already, and uh, a longing is touched there. And how should I begin? And again, there are these dots that separate this section from uh, what follows It's a little three line section that's inserted between uh, uh, typographical uh, uh, dots that set it off and he He now is in transit, I think to this meeting place and what is set up here is the hope having remembered the arms, the hope that he might what's awakened is a longing in which the erotic and the religious dimensions are are completely commingled and it, but it stirs enough for him to move out to risk possibly risk an encounter he tries now or perhaps he will try to reach through that yellow fog to get beyond the window pane and to make a connection because he is now being touched by this longing, which is both erotic and religious. That's how I would read it. And now we're in the transition place. That's why the poem marks it off with these dots above and below this three-line section. And in the transition, uh, in the external sense, in the journey there, he thinks to himself how to begin. How does one begin the conversation? How should I begin? You see, that was the last question. How should I begin? And the next line says, Shall I say, I have gone at dusk through narrow streets and watched the smoke that rises from the pipes of lonely men in shirt sleeves leaning out of windows? I should have been a pair of ragged claws scuttling across the floors of silence. Here's how I think uh, that can best be understood. He's on his way there, and he thinks, "How should I begin? Well, I should begin with small talk. I should begin with, well, a funny thing happened to me on the way over here tonight. I should just say what I noticed on the way." Uh, Prufrock is lost in a in a in this swarm of uh, sense data anyway, and so he he said, "Well, I'll just begin by saying something about the journey over. I'll I'll say," and he looks up and he says, "Shall I say?" I have gone at dusk through narrow streets and watched the smoke that rises from the pipes of lonely men in shirt sleeves leaning out of windows. Dot, dot, dot. Wait a minute. It's a casual chit-chat sort of small talk, but what it is is self-disclosing. He thought, well, I'll just mention something I happened to see, but what he saw was lonely men in shirt sleeves leaning out of window. So even chit-chat is dangerous because it it involves the risk of self-disclosure. Small talk, even small talk, involves the risk of self-disclosure. And so he says he withdraws. He comes back in, and he says, I should have been a pair of ragged claws scuttling across the floors of silent sea. A a reference to, to a biological or an evolutionary regression. I should have been a hard-shelled creature that just has these two big grabbing claws. So when it wants something, it grabs, and it backs away, and it's got a hard shell. That's what I should have been. An evolutionary throwback. Oh, if I could only be that. But what what he's afraid of is, being, is having that shell removed And even small talk threatens to remove it. It threatens to expose him for what he is. A lonely man leaning out of window. Remember the window pane? Leaning out of that window. Wanting to make that connection. And the afternoon, the evening, sleeps so peacefully, smoothed by long fingers, asleep, tired or it malingers stretched on the floor here beside you and me and this I think is supposed to be as confusing as it is it's a kind of pastiche of little glimpses of a, of a, of a scene should I after tea and cakes and ices the only sacramental resource available should I after tea and cakes and ices have the strength to force the moment to its crisis? Crisis is the Greek word which means judgment. It means the moment when a decision must be made, at the moment in which indecision is a decision. Does he have the strength to force it to the crisis? Not without the sacramental resource. He does not. Tea and cakes and Isis does not supply enough of a sacramental resource to precipitate the crisis. Should I, after tea and cakes and ices, have the, force, the strength to force the moment to its crisis? But though I have wept and fasted, wept and prayed, though I have seen my head, grown slightly bald, brought in upon a platter, I am no prophet. And here's no great matter. I have seen the moment of my greatness flicker. I have seen the eternal footman hold my coat and snicker. And in short, I was afraid the images of John the Baptist with his head brought in upon a platter, for having announced the faithlessness of Herod and Herodias, uh, the prophet who dies, the martyr. He's a prophet, but he's a martyr. Martyr is a Greek word which means to witness for something. Everybody dies for what they believe in. And Proofrock is a martyr to the social order. The social order giveth and the social order taketh away. And Proofrock is a martyr to that. It is the fear of, the, of being sanctioned or censured by the social order that keeps him from making the connection. And in short, I was afraid. The question through all this is, can I reach out? Can I reach through the window, through the yellow fog, and make a connection is there enough longing here to 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 motivate that And it says, in short, I was afraid, in other words, he failed to do so, and the next section is a thinking about the opportunity now that it has passed sort of if only kind of. Would it have been worth it after all, he's thinking on it now, would it have been worth it after all, after the cups, the marmalade, the tea, among the porcelain, among some talk of you and me, would it have been worthwhile to have bitten off the matter with a smile, to have squeezed the universe into a ball, to roll it towards some overwhelming question? There's the question again. Now, he's. this is a play on uh, Andrew Marvell's poem To His Coy Mistress, which begins, Had we, which is a, which is a comic poem, Had we but world enough in time, This coyness lady were no crime, we, we would sit down and think which way To walk and pass our long love's day, And so on and so forth. I would love you ten years before the flood, And you should, if you please, refuse till the conversion of the Jews. But at my back I always hear time's winged chariot hurrying near. He says, we can't, we're not going to put this off forever. And then he says, let us roll our strength and all our sweetness up into one ball and tear our pleasure with rough strife through the iron gates of life. So proof rock is this little echo of, Marvell, that's it. He's saying, would it have been worth it, you see, to have bitten off the matter with a smile, to have squeezed the universe into a ball, to roll it towards some overwhelming question? To say, I am Lazarus. Come from the dead. Come back to tell you all. I shall tell you all. Now, this is a tremendous thing. This is Lazarus who's, who's brought back from the dead by Jesus in the Gospels. The gamble is coming alive. Would it have been worth it to come alive in her presence? Yes, to actually risk exposure, to leave the shrouds in which the corpse has been wrapped on the floor of the tomb, and come out of that deadness, and come alive, would it have been worth it to say, I am Lazarus, come from the dead? It connects the erotic longing with religious longing, and resurrection. It's like Dante's La Vita Nuova. Dante's La Vita Nuova is is in a way a resurrection poem, and it's about life and death and er, eroticism and all of that, and it's, the stirrings are all there, the religious and the erotic mixed together. Would it have been worth it to say, I am Lazarus, come from the dead? If one, settling a pillow by her head, should say, that, that, that That's not what I meant at all. That's not it at all. You see the fear there? It's the fear of exposure. How many of us have had that opportunity to, to, to be Lazarus, declaring ourselves as Lazarus and being misunderstood? Oh, who will risk it? An act of faith and an act of commitment and love are in, they're, they're actually two, two versions of the same thing. It's the risk of declaring oneself. And he says, "Would it have been worth it, even if I? If would it have been worth it if I declared myself?" And she had said, "That's not what I meant." Oh boy! See. And notice it says, "If settling her pillow on her head." I don't think you see that proofrock is afraid, in any way, of a of a sexual. Uh, Encounter What he's afraid he's not be, he's not afraid of being rebuffed in terms of a sexual encounter because he says settling her pillow on the head I think what he's afraid of is that the sexual encounter will have Will uh, be exclusively that and will not in, involve this larger uh, Resurrection this This larger, more religiously significant, so that if he declared himself, you see this is sort of after the fact, she's settling the pillow by her head and saying, that's not what I meant at all. That's the fear a fear that that stems from how surcharged with religious feeling his eroticism is that it would that it would be reduced to you know genital eroticism and that she would misunderstand that other would it have been worth it then he goes on would it have been worth it after all would it have been worthwhile after the sunsets and the dooryards and the sprinkled streets after the novels after the teacups after the skirts that trail along the floor and this and so much more and then it trails off it is impossible to say just what I mean but as if a magic lantern threw the nerves and patterns on a screen. And that I think is the key to his poetic strategy. Again, he's just going to give us little impressions. This is a this is a stream of consciousness. Eliot was very much affected by by uh, Joyce's Ulysses. This is he's just going to give us impressions. Would it have been worth it? And I can't say what I mean, but would it have been worthwhile if one? settling a pillow or throwing off a shawl and turning toward the window should say, that is not it at all. That is not what I meant at all. Can you feel the prison closing in on him? The longing with that kind of force and power to it being shut up inside his life because he can't risk that kind of misunderstanding. No, I am not Prince Hamlet. No is meant to be. Am an attendant lord, one that will do to swell a progress, start a scene or two, advise the prince, no doubt an easy tool, deferential, glad to be of use, politic, cautious, and meticulous, full of high sentence, but a bit obtuse, at times indeed, almost ridiculous almost at times, the fool. Capital F, fool. First Corinthians, Paul talks about being a fool for Christ. Almost at times, the fool. The fool would be one who would say, I am Lazarus, come from the dead. That's the fool. And he was almost the fool, but not quite. So what he is instead is not Prince Hamlet. Notice he says, I am not Prince Hamlet. I am a counselor. The poem starts with the epigraph about the evil counselor who's in hell. Politic, cautious, meticulous, glad to be of use. You see? There you have it. The recipe for ending up where Guido is. But I think it's more important that he says, I am not Prince Hamlet. Let's connect it with a couple of things. Canto 2 of the Inferno. Dante says to Virgil, But I, Virgil says, we've got to go, we have to go into the afterworld. He says, But I, how should I dare? Remember, Prufrock says, Should I dare and should I dare? How should I dare? By whose permission? I am not Aeneas, I am not Paul. In other words, not the fool for Christ. Who could believe me worthy of the vision? How then may I presume to this high quest? Remember, Prufrock keeps keep saying, how should I presume? How can I presume to this high quest and not fear my own brashness? You are wise and will grasp what my poor words can but suggest. This is the John Ciardi translation. And then Dante comments on his own uh, condition. He says, as one who unwills what he wills, will stay strong purposes with feeble second thoughts until he spells all his first zeal away. So I hung back and balked on that dim coast till thinking had worn out my enterprise, so stout at starting and so early lost. Dante says, How should I presume? And how should I begin? And he says, I am not Aeneas." I'm not Paul. Aeneas and Paul are decisive people, you see. Fools if they have to be. I am Lazarus if they have to be. I'm not those. Says, I'm not Hamlet. And now, the, 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 the question has been, what is the question? Roll it towards some overwhelming question. You have to remember, what was Hamlet's key question in his most famous soliloquy. And this line says No, I am not Prince Hamlet, nor was meant to be. To be. Or not to be. I was not meant to be. So I will just be a counselor. Almost the fool, you see. Almost the fool. I grow old, I grow old, I shall wear the bottoms of my trousers rolled. Again, the emphasis on the externals. The wearing of the, bo- the trousers rolled was, was a, a sort of a dashing um, a, a, a little thing to do, you see, in the time this written. It was a kind of sporty thing to do. Showed that you were young and cavalier. So what's left but the externals? I grow old, I grow old. I shall wear the bottoms of my trousers rolled. Shall I part my hair behind? Remember the little ball spot? Maybe if i change changed the part, we could cover that up a little bit. Shall I part my hair behind? Do I dare to eat a peach? I shall wear white flannel trousers. Again, I'll dress in a sporty way. I shall wear white flannel trousers like the young guys do and walk upon the beach. I have heard the mermaids singing. Each to each I do not think they will sing to me. I have seen them riding seaward on the waves, combing the white hair of the waves blown back when the wind blows the water white and black, we have lingered in the chambers of the sea by sea-girls wreathed with seaweed red and brown till human voices wake us and we drown. This has been an inner fantasy since he has walked away from it thinking, what if and what if and what if? And on the beach now, in a sense, on the beach in this inner fantasy, the, the two voices inside him carry on until a human voice, which is the, only, the, the place where the contact can be made and where the contact was not made. And here comes a voice from the human world and it wakes him from that inner dialogue, that inner fantasy. And he drowns in the, in the human world overwhelms him he says i do not think they will sing to me i think it 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 becomes um vicarious becomes vicarious i do not think they will sing to me Uh, to me the, the 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 heart of this thing is that being able to risk saying i am lazarus come back from the dead the fear there again is is that is that somehow the, the the larger religious dimension of that longing will be unreciprocated simon ve said uh, the uh the longing for the beloved is the longing for the incarnation, whether we know it or not and and it seems to me there's there's something of that in proofrock and and he's right on the verge of I and mean, he's feeling it. But he's afraid that this larger religious aspect of his of his longing will be misunderstood. That, that there's no context for that, and it's out of fear that that will be misunderstood that he holds back. That I love that line about uh, at times indeed almost ridiculous, almost at times the fool, capital F, almost. Oh, God, that's what the world needs is fools who can who can. Make that declaration when it, when it is a truthful declaration who can say, sorry to say I made that little assertion, sorry to say you believed it, therefore I'm sitting here pinned and wiggling on the wall, but I want to tell you the truth. I'm laughing.